Father, you grow and shape us in so many ways. We thank you for the opportunity to be at a place like this, to expand our minds and wrestle with how it is that you've put this place together and how you are unfolding it and how we find our place in that movement. Father, thank you for each and every student here, for every faculty, for every staff member, for those who've participating in this community. Father, for those who are struggling today and in places in the margins, we ask that you would reveal them to us through the work of your spirit. For those who are hurting, we would enfold them, that we would be loving, that we would be the kind of community that would reflect your heart, that we would be good at doing it, to love fully and to look like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hi, I'm Rob Lowe, and I have DirecTV. And I'm Meathead Rob Lowe, and I have cable. With DirecTV, you get the best picture and sound available. I've got great picture and sound, but I'm talking about that picture and this sound. I can't get over this theater quality experience. And I can't stop saying bro, bro. Don't be like this me. Get rid of cable and upgrade to DirecTV. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Have you seen these commercials? I love them because I think they're kind of hilarious as he's making fun of himself and these different identities. And I love them because it's a little bit of an honest take on the advertising world in particular. How do you explain and sell your product to people when you don't know what the next thing is that you're going to sell it off of is? So they even have commercials where this, he's comparing himself to somebody else. Like, don't be like this loser me because this loser me would have a TV where you can see cords coming out the bottom. Like, you don't want to be that guy. And they sell it off these weird kind of platforms and ideas, which is interesting to me because at the end of the day, what they're not trying to sell you ever is a product, but rather an identity. Advertising really does this for the most part, doesn't it, right? Like, the pretty girls wear this stuff. The successful guys drive that car. And at the end of the day, it's an identity more than a product that is being peddled to you. And the question is for each of us, Do we want what it is that's being sold? And we have to decide about that. Products, we are told, tell the world something about us. Many companies in the U.S. pay huge money to have their product placement in a TV show so that when you're watching the show, their little can of Pepsi or whatever else comes up so that it's integrated into life and you would see that that character who I wish I could relate to, I want to be like them, therefore I should drink a Pepsi too, I guess. I found out recently there's only one company in the U.S. that does not pay for product placement, and yet is the one that is used more than any other. That is Apple Computers. Because that signifies that you are a creative, intelligent, kind of edgy, maybe hipster-type person, so you would have a Mac. And so they are actually the one company that doesn't have to do this, and people will ask them, can we use your computers on our TV shows? So why is identity up for sale? And how impressionable do they really believe that we actually are? Well, when you get ready in the morning and you look in the mirror, what identity are you hoping to convey? What are the adjectives you wish people would say about you, describing you to somebody else? What do you want the world to see about you? What do you want them to understand about your identity? I go sometimes to these conferences nowadays, and there's a lot of like the, the hipster pastors 
kind of conferences where they go and everybody's in skinny jeans and listens to certain kinds of music. It's really interesting that even like in the young generation of pastors, there's a sub-demographic that begins to unfold and take place. And I'm following through the little checklist at the last one I was at, and I was thinking, I'm doing pretty good on this checklist, right? I mean, true, my jeans weren't quite skinny enough, um, but I like coffee and I like micro-brews and I love using the word community a whole lot. Um, and I've got a backstory and a tattoo. Um, and then on the next one, it totally fell apart because I actually don't like Sufjan Stevens' music. <laughs> and I realized a bunch of people that I really look up to in life love Sufjan Stevens, and I really should like him. And I tried really, really hard for a very long time to like him, and I realized I don't like him. So for all you Suf- Sufjan Stevens fans, I hope you didn't just like reject me out of altogether, but I don't. I'm sorry, I wish I could, I've tried, I, I don't. <laughs> Have you ever felt like that, like in your little group, somebody listens to a type of music and you, you want to like it, and you, you want to believe that somehow associating yourself with that style of dress or that music or those group of people or people who drive that kind of car are some sort of collective identity. The sad thing is, is these box people in This is what we've done with stereotypes for so long. Our minds, we have a sinful temptation to oversimplify people. We want to put a tag on you. We want to put you in some sort of box, like because we can wrap our mind around you very easily and explain you to people. We do this all the time. Think of all the stereotypes you've ever heard. And this starts so young when we're growing up already, doesn't it? I had a conversation with my eight-year-old son, eight years old, third grade. He recently figured out in school that he's really smart. Just dawned on him. He gets put in this talented and gifted program. But the problem is for Judah is that he's adopted and he's black. So this is what happens when Judah comes back into a third grade classroom. You can't, you can't be good at school and be good at sports, Judah. You have to pick. That's the commentary from classmates. That's what he heard. And my son comes up to me and asks me, Dad, is it true I'm not allowed to be good at sports? and good at school? And are black people typically not good at school? I wanted to die inside. All these stereotypes getting put upon him, and you and I feel them too in different ways as well. There are certain stereotypes and things you're supposed to do if you're in a particular major. We rank and file people according to majors already. You you guys do this, right? You, You assume certain things. You're an engineer. It's the hardest degree. You have no life. You're a nursing student. That's pretty much just below engineering. And we have like these different understandings of people's supposed work ethic. Or We use a very worldly rank and file system, don't we? So what are the stereotypes that you've fallen prey to in the ways that you categorize people when you look at them? For Pete's sake, we still do it with gender. But it's easy for us. And as we look at these different people around us, we realize that we are impressionable. That's why advertising works, right? If they couldn't convince you to do something, why would they spend money on advertising? But apparently we are impressionable and we'll give in to it. Apparently the comments work on Judy because he comes home with the questions and now he's in the middle of an identity crisis. So we are, let's admit it, we are very, very impressionable. So we're wondering what effect is all these things in our life going to have on us. We have so much uncertainty. And I think these four years in college is a huge time of identity crisis. Because you kind of feel like, if I pick this major, this is going to mean da 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 about me. 
If I choose to date so-and-so, that could mean I would have to live in Michigan. Do you know what I'm saying? We feel like these decisions that we're making are predetermining so much of the future, and so we feel like there's this weight on us. I was amazed in the survey that we asked you over Christmas break, how many times we had faculty come up in conversation saying, I wish my students cared about grades less. From professors. Wrap your mind around that one. But identity is one that comes up over and over again in your guys' questions. I'm going to read a list of questions that came from you guys as students, okay? So what does it actually mean to find our place in life? What should my goals be? How do I know I'm doing what God wants me to do with my life? How do I trust God with the major I've chosen? This is my second year at Dort, and I cannot find a single major that I'm even passionate about. How do I know I picked the right major? How do I know if I'm doing what God wants me to do? How can I know that this is the plan that God has for my life? I mean, I'm being selfish, or is this what he wants for me? How do you know what God is calling you to do, and how do you hear his voice? What are God's plans for my future? How am I supposed to figure out what God's plan for my life is? How do we know we are where we are supposed to be? How do I discover what, who God intended me to be? How do I discover who God wants me to be? Not only vocationally in my career, but spiritually as a man or a woman. Why me? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Why am I even here? We have a huge identity crisis trying to figure out what it is. And so often, we, we think that this is something that's absolutely horrible and, and wrong. I had a conversation with a student this week. We were talking about a friend of theirs who when they're with this person, they act this way, and when they're with this person, they act that way. And they were frustrated by this social chameleon nature of this friend of theirs. And I get it. At its worst, that is something that we can do bad. Now, I think we all have the capability of doing this, right? You act a certain way in front of certain people, and you act a certain way in front of other people. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but step back and kind of ask yourself, I'm, I'm a little bit scared of the fact that I can do this. Like, am I duplicitous? Am I, am I phony? Am I fake? What if that wasn't the case? What if all of those uncertainties actually and the openness that we have to where we could be or who we really are or the fact that our identity is shapeable, what if that is actually isn't a bad thing, but what if that is actually part of what it means to look like Christ? Paul says this about himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Though I am free and I belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. To win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people. So that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So apparently Paul was like some sort of social chameleon. Like he could become whatever it is that the environment required of him. Sometimes we see this as a total bad thing. And I guess if you sell out your, your values and your understanding and your actual identity in this process, then yes, it can be. And we've seen that done in a damaging way probably in our own lives and in people around us. But to be open to our environment 
And to be able to be changed by it and become what is needed in that situation is actually to be like what Paul's talking about. And in fact, I would argue, is to be like Christ, who was incarnational and became like us. Your, the fact that you are impressionable does not make you weak. The fact that you are impressionable means that you have the possibility of looking more like Christ. If you couldn't change, then what are we doing this for? If sanctification isn't real, then what are we talking about? You have the ability through the work of Christ within you and the movements of the Spirit to be changed, to be sanctified, to be made new. If you couldn't change, even in Sioux County, wooden shoes, wooden head, wouldn't listen, Dutch Sioux County stubborn people, even here, we have the possibility, the ability to change, to be changed, to be open to what God wants from us. We are impressionable. And I always thought that was something we had to apologize for, but I'm realizing now that in the hands of God, that becomes an incredible thing. Because when we open ourselves up to the change that he wants to create within us, we become more like Christ. And the gifts of the fruit of the Spirit start coursing through us. It is a gift that you are impressionable. It means that when you repent, you can actually be changed. And when you ask for forgiveness, you actually are changed. Like the psalm read from in 51, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Like change me again, God. So if we're willing to accept this truth about us that we are impressionable, then consider this. The amount of time then that what we put in front of us matters immensely. This is why we encourage people to go to church. This is why we put ourselves in places of worship. This is why we pray. This is why we cultivate time and discipline for devotional life because we believe that when we put ourselves in that place, transformation happens. It's an acknowledgement that we are impressionable, that we are weak and we become like our environment at times. Every spiritual follower of Christ has a little bit of ADD. Who hasn't sat there in the middle of a sermon wanting so hard to be able to focus and then all of a sudden, oh, floofy, and then your mind and imagination drifts off because something's floating around? Or you remember something you're going to do that week, and then you kind of punish yourself and you're all upset about it. It's like Christians, right? You're trying to watch and focus and zero on a Bible passage and then you're reading and in the middle of the reading, squirrel, and you just sort of take off and your imagination goes. But what if even that too is a tool in the hand of God that you are impressionable. That you are open to the world around you and have the ability to be changed by it. So if that's true though, then what you put in front of you matters immensely. The people you surround yourself with matter immensely. If they can help you become more you. If the people you hang out with make you feel a little more Christ-like by the time you go to bed at the end of the day, you found some pretty solid friends. When I sit down with those of you who are couples trying to figure out, is this a person I'm supposed to marry or not? I really have one question at the end of the day I'm trying to figure out with all of you. Does this person help you become more like Christ? Do you like who you are when you're with them? Are they helping you become the person you couldn't be on your own because of the work of Christ within them? If you can answer that question, guys, that's pretty much a done deal. It's really not that complicated. Because this is the movement that we're all called to partake in. 
And this is the movement within us that matters the most at the end of the day. Another passage. When I realized I've, I've reached this passage twice in the last two years, and each time I preached it a different way, and then this week I found a third way now I need to preach this text. This is from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Sermon number one. Jesus is empowered to do ministry because of the Holy Spirit that comes upon him. That's what sends him out. That's the same Holy Spirit that you and I get. The ministry that Jesus is called to impart to the world is the same kingdom of God that you and I are participating in. We are empowered by the same Spirit, called to do the same things. That's an incredibly empowering message. That was sermon number one. Here's sermon number two. Immediately, the Spirit thrust him into the wilderness. That to undergo suffering and struggle as a follower of Jesus does not mean that the love of God has abandoned you. It might just mean that God isn't done with you yet. Maybe hardship in life is actually evidence of God's design and desire to keep changing you. But here's sermon number three. The voice of the Father, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And Jesus hadn't done anything yet. No miracles. Public ministry hadn't started. For a bunch of performance-oriented people, we need to hear this message loud and clear. Your father created you and then spoke over you too. It is very good. I'm a big fan of this one. Before you could do anything, God's kingdom will come with or without us, and he actually doesn't need us to break his kingdom in. And you will not be measured by your productivity at the end of the day. You may in your job, but not in the kingdom. God is way more concerned with who you become than what you do. These are questions about identity. Who are you? Not what do you do, not what is your job. Who are you? Because these things start to come out at the end of the day. And these, believe me, are the things that God is looking for when he opens doors and new worlds and opportunities and vocational careers to you as you go. If we believe God is in control of all things, if we believe that, then we believe it's our movement into the likeness of his son that creates opportunities for us. Should you study hard, get good grades? Yes, you should. Should you apply yourself to the tasks and be a great steward of everything that's been entrusted to you? Yes, you should. But none of those things will define you at the end of the day. Your identity is so uniquely put together. And God designed a perfect kingdom that only works when we all fulfill our own little puzzle piece. You don't have to be more than you are, but don't be less than you are either. And this is how the kingdom comes. And when people realize this, they find a new level of comfort in who they are. And they're free. And I know that you've met these types of people in life and you want to be like them when you see them. It's hard to explain. People who are just comfortable. I'll put John on the spot. When Robert Taylor, Bethany Scudinga, and I went up to Sioux Falls to interview John for the job, I remember getting back in the car and driving home and Bethany asking us, so what do you think? 
And we had been through his resume and the other stuff. And my one response in that moment was, I don't know, but the Jesus in me sure digs the Jesus in that guy. <laughs> and I would still say the same thing. When the Jesus in you is just resonates with the Jesus in somebody else and it's so evident and becomes apparent, you are straining and stressing yourself in so many different ways. But what if, what if, what if in this moment you could just simply close your eyes and imagine God actually giving you a mission statement for your life? Not the one that has come from your parents or their expectations and not one from the culture around you. Not one that you put upon yourself because you got something left to prove to somebody who called you something in elementary school. If God spoke a mission statement over your life, what would he say? I'm betting it would have a whole lot more to do with being than it would with doing. We're trying to learn how to be the object of his affection. To move more fully into a belief that his love is as big as he says it is. And when we start moving that direction, it starts to shape our character. Our identity becomes a little more like Jesus. I met two young men on an airplane last week. They were sitting beside me and we were stuck on the tarmac and our plane kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And they were realizing that where we were going to land was going to put us in too late for them to get the rental car from the company that they were going to get a car from. They were going to be stuck at the airport. These two kids looked about 23 years old. And they're talking back and forth, and one of them's on the main headquarters to this, this auto rental company, and the other one's to the local regional branch, and they're on their cell phones, and they're trying to get this done, and you can tell they're getting increasingly frustrated, but they're handling it pretty good. And in between the calls, one of them says to the other one, you know, it's not really their fault, that individual, so don't, don't take it out on them, the person who answers the phone. And they're, they're calling each other back and forth, and they're doing all of this, and they're somewhere in the middle of two men arguing with people on the other side of the line, in the manner in which they were arguing I came to the conclusion, there is a Jesus in them. There is a self-control that is not evident with most people who argue at rental car counters. <laughs> there is a language coming in with them that's still honoring to the other person. They're voicing their frustration. This is, not, this is the stuff that comes out of your identity, right? Nobody else is looking. Mom and dad aren't looking over their shoulder. Nobody else cares. It's an anonymous person on the other side of the line. You could say whatever you wanted, and you probably have a right to be very frustrated. So I decided in that moment when they hang up the phones, I love doing this on airplanes with people, I decided I'm going to tell them, I saw Jesus in you when you did that. But they end up hanging up the phones, we get the call that over the intercom, cell phone's got to get turned off. I open up a book I'm in the middle of reading, it's Donald Miller's new book, Scary Close, which just came out last week, incredible book, go ahead and read it by the way. And so the one guy says, is that the new Donald Miller book? I said, yeah. He says, is it any good? I said, yeah, it's incredible. He says, have you read other parts of Donald Miller? I said, yes. And I said, are you, are, you, are, you, are you a follower of Jesus? And they said, yes. And I said, I could tell. They said, how could you tell? I said, I know this is going to sound really weird to you, but with the way you argued with a rental car counter, I saw Jesus in you. These two, I went, we went on to talk the rest of the plane ride. I had an amazing conversation with these two young men who had recently graduated from Liberty University. Neither one of them had jobs yet in their field. They weren't fully placed. They didn't know what the future was. But something about Jesus was taking hold inside of them because the identity starts coming through. 
I know often in college is a confusing time with so much of life that is ahead of you. Listen to the questions you rattled off. But listen to the alumni voices too. There's more of this that's taking in you than you even realize. And you are being shaped. And one day you will argue at a rental car counter or somewhere else, and the Jesus in you is going to show a little bit. And as you grow up more and more, it's going to show in you more and more and more. And may that shape your identity, a likeness of Christ that takes you on a vacation to Florida at an argument in a rental car counter, in the middle of your job, in your home, in your marriage, and everywhere in between. May you look like the one and be open to the one who made you. He is not done with you yet. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are shaping our identity, that we can be found in you. For all the places where we are weak, Father, teach us to realize what you see these as, opportunities to make us strong in you. Father, from the littlest of ways to the biggest, from the quietest of places within us to those we speak the loudest, may our identity, the uniqueness of who you made us be, still be a reflection of you. Trust us. Father, teach us to trust you with how you made us, with the gifts you gave us, to just simply be us, to find freedom there, to serve you there, to reflect you there, and find glory in it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you rise and receive a blessing in the rest of the day? Children of our great and creative God, you were made uniquely. You were made very good. He is not done with you yet. His spirit is still at work. May you see it today in all that you do. Go in peace to love and serve our God. Amen.